The Brief is supported by Bloomberg Connects, the free arts and culture app. Calls for a royal commission into housing and health as 5,000 deaths caused by cold and damp homes. A new wave of multi-storey industrial developments transforming urban skylines. And the South Korean architect Min Suk Cho picked to design this summer's Serpentine Gallery Pavilion. My name is Merlin Fulcher. I'm an architectural journalist, and I'll be bringing you a roundup of this week's big stories in architecture, planning, and housing news. Welcome to the brief from Open City. My guest this week is Graham Howarth. Graham is an architect and co-founder of the Sterling Prize-winning practice Howarth Tompkins. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. The Housing Ombudsman in England is pushing for the establishment of an independent royal commission to re-establish the forgotten link between health and housing and, quote, reimagine the future of social housing, end quote. This was reported in The Guardian this week. Richard Blakeway, who is ombudsman, handles thousands of cases of disrepair, squalor and discrimination facing tenants across the country, proclaimed that significant parts of the social housing sector had reached breaking point, leaving tenants in a desperate situation. He said, quote, the system in some areas is really close to being overwhelmed. The scale of the challenge hasn't been grasped, end quote. Across England, some four million households live in social housing. Of these, 380,000 are housed in places deemed, quote, non-decent by the government itself. And 88,000 households are living with serious mould and damp problems, something which has been acutely exacerbated by the recent hike in fuel costs. New research by the End Fuel Poverty Coalition and reported by The Big Issue found that last year alone cold and damp homes caused nearly 5,000 excess deaths. Blakeway, who was previously Deputy Mayor for London under Boris Johnson, took on the role of housing ombudsman four years ago, during which time the death from mould of two-year-old Arab Ishak highlighted the acute crisis facing social housing. In a 70-page report, Blakeway noted how the dramatic growth in casework over his tenure had, quote, turned the ombudsman into something like an emergency service, adding that there had been, quote, neglect in policy and in the way some residents have been treated, marginalised and stigmatised by the people that are there to help them. The report concluded with a plea to establish a royal commission dedicated to presenting a, quote, single view of welfare, health and housing spend, end quote. The last Royal Commission that dealt with housing in the working classes, as it was described at the time, was set up 130 years ago in 1884 and comprised a panel of politicians, trade unionists, business people, bishops and royals and instigated a mass social housing drive and established laws making landlords personally liable for tenants' health. OK, so Graham, what's this all about? Why is good housing so important to our physical and mental health? And also, why has this become such a pressing thing once again, despite all the advances that we made in tackling poor housing and poor health in the sort of decades that followed that original Royal Commission? It's a bit of a no-brainer, really, isn't it? That good environments, good housing with good sanitation, good access to daylight and sunlight and uh, fresh air is, is beneficial to, to physical and mental health. I think what the issue here is, is that that, benefit and particularly in terms of social housing has, has sort of slipped really low down the priority list and the agenda and there's a lot of talk about affordable housing but really the social component of that what you would probably 
historically coal council-owned housing for low-income families is, is really low. It's, it's really low on the agenda, uh, and it's low on the agenda in, in sort of new build as well. So I think it's quite interesting to just take a slight detour and just look at what new build policy is providing. At, at the moment, uh, most schemes that go forward, they try to provide 50% affordable housing. But of, of that component, social rent, you know, low-income family rentals, is really low. It's about it's about thirty percent of that if it's if it's maximum. And and really, what's been delivered historically over the last couple of years is as low as thirteen percent of of social housing, social rent housing. So if the new build is only producing thirteen percent, then you transfer that back to existing housing stock. The priorities for renovating and looking after that housing stock are really even lower down the agenda. So that while there is some funding available, I think it falls onto each local authority to sort of foot the bill and and find the money to do it. And I think they generally struggle to do that from a, from a central funding uh, perspective. And if we just think back to, say, like the beginning of, of your career, right? As an architect, you've designed and delivered social housing across London, some of it award-winning stuff, really interesting stuff. Um, that there was in the past, in this country, certainly in the mid-20th century, a real like prestige and ambition around this idea of building housing for everybody, not just for like the most needy people, but building a future for everybody that was fundamentally a space that was good for your physical and mental well-being, right? Where did that go? Like, where did that go in the sort of tradition of architecture? I mean, I know it still exists in, in some pockets, but you're very constrained. Yeah. Um and, and in our society as well, because this was this was just somewhat like a given. This was just what what we wanted to do. I think the real connection post-war came out of sort of national crisis, didn't it? So we were in a, a real mess, and the, we needed homes and we needed health, and there was a direct link there. So the planners that were planning uh, environments at those times took that on board. And where I live in Camden, there was some amazing programs of, of affordable and social housing. And that that went forward. And it was supported at that point by, a, you know, pretty high levels of central government funding. That's changed. That 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 funding stream has, has been reduced. It's been reduced down to affordable housing. But when you look at existing housing stock, the, the grants available are, are, are really a fraction of what they were to sustain that, that housing stock. And then if you look at the quantum of the housing stock, again, just using Camden as an example, I don't know how many thousands of homes you've got, but it's it's all ageing now. It's all getting to the end of its design life and it needs you know increased sort of renovation to make it fit for purpose. We've also been hit by a lot of tragedy through Grenfell. So post-Grenfell, the Building Safety Act is coming in. Most new buildings need second staircases and those are now having to be retrofitted into existing buildings over a certain height. So it's a sort of perfect storm, really, of a lot of different criteria that are coming together and really really squeezing local authorities. And the fact that local authorities are really strapped for cash means that the social aspect of the housing stock begins to drop down. So I think what the proposal for a review of that to try and you know, reimagine the future of social housing, redefine it, because I think we've lost the definition of what it actually means and what it's for. And, um, you know, the there's a very narrow vision of, of what social housing is for now, whereas historically it was much broader and more, more people understood it, more people bought into it. It's really interesting to think about like housing policy itself and in the, in the present era, um, and certainly there's been enormous cuts to the amount of government grant going to housing associations, going into the house, uh, social housing sector yeah. uh, in the sort of era of austerity, that really there is a policy for home ownership, um, but not really 
a viable policy for anybody who doesn't qualify for home ownership if you do not fit the mold of being able to qualify for a mortgage which often involves being in a relationship you know because often affordable housing isn't even affordable to a single person it has to be two young professionals um now what's interesting this call for a royal commission is coming from the housing ombudsman really it really sounds like someone at the end of their tether doesn't it because for listeners like the ombudsman effectively if you live in social housing this is who you write to if you've sent a whole load of letters to your social housing landlord endlessly and that we know there's horrific situations that people face and that landlord has not fixed it right and we know they're under a lot of pressure we know they've got the money shortages and so on and so forth there are many different reasons why that hasn't happened but there is also the fact that there's families and people living in those homes who need to live in a healthy home they've gone to the ombudsman and then the ombudsman is supposed to hold the social housing uh, provider to account they this it does somewhat sound like they're stepping beyond that remit and saying we need a royal commission it's like they're almost like sounding the alarm bells um, yeah what is the significance of this i mean yeah can this be underplayed i mean this is, it does seem like quite a big deal no I, I think i think there's been a huge loss of focus and 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 really what policy has done is it's reinforced a shift in values. Whether it's a shift in values that people understood was taking place or whether it's values that they actually hold, but they seem to have lost that connection with social value and welfare and the fact that not everybody can afford to own a house. This idea of the the, the ombudsman calling for a redefinition I think just points to the the fact that he uses the expression it's almost broken and I, I think it is actually. And I think People have lost the connection between the benefits of providing that sector of the community with good immunity and good good welfare because it actually benefits us as a society. It takes them off social welfare, it reduces benefit payments, and it increases you know, improves their mental health and ability to to be active in in society. And I think that was you know you compared it to earlier in the century where, where there seemed to be a much more synergy between those values and what this housing was for. I think has has slipped a little bit. Well, not a little bit, a lot really. And just uh, another story covered by Inside Housing this week is that Lancaster City Council's asked residents of two tower blocks to move out of their homes um, so that the buildings could be refurbished. Uh, the buildings are part of a wider 257 home master plan for the area. However. Last year, amid concerns over inflation and borrowing and building costs, the council instead decided to sell both those blocks to a developer. That's after residents had moved out on the proviso of them being refurbished. Um, So, Graham, what do you make of this story in particular? Is this an unusual thing or does this happen quite often? And why are we in a situation where councils are opting to sell off housing stock to developers rather than refurbish it themselves? I think here the the issue is the actual spiralling costs of of refurbishment. There's, There's a really good carbon argument for retaining existing buildings and it tends to work better on buildings that are more flexible and adaptable housing is is kind of a difficult one particularly high-rise housing in that there are all sorts of hidden costs structural costs and building services costs that go with those complex structures and we, we had experience in Southwark of uh, a, a 1960s tower made, made you house and we spent five years trying to get that to work and, and at every point there was a slow sort of attrition of why it wasn't viable and why it was getting more difficult to do. And and the first stage was to try and put 24 private sale apartments on the on the roof of the building. So on the, on top of a 20-storey tower, you put another six storeys. And that's at extra storeys? Yeah. And those would have been timber storeys or concrete? Uh, it was a, st- a steel structure on top of the, the concrete frame, and that would have generated the revenue. So at the, so the beginning of the journey, and I can yeah. see Lancaster Council have probably been on a similar sort of journey. So at the beginning of the journey, 
the regeneration of the Aberfield estate was predicated on roof extensions on the low buildings and then a big extension on the tower and then a total refurbishment of the tower. So at the beginning of the journey, it was mapped out. It was, I, I don't know, the figures broadly say 35 million to do that. As the journey went on, more and more things became uncovered. There was hesitation of, of moving forward in certain areas. Grenfell happened, so we had to introduce a second staircase. Uh, so currently it only has one staircase, yeah, yeah, so you'd have to put yeah. an extra one on yeah. to meet and the then, new safety needs. And then the viability of the private sale was questioned. Uh, so that went, and the idea was it was more economic to build on an adjacent site with, with new buildings. So that went out of the tower. And then Arup did a structural report about loadings, wind resistance, and, and it was just like one thing after another that led to sort of spiralling costs. And it was it was a beautiful scheme. It would have acted as a sort of beacon for uh, sustainable regeneration of an existing structure, so we kept all the concrete. But the basic underlying problem is that the, the cost had spiralled by tens of millions. So at the end of it, I think we were up to sort of 60 million, something like that. And it just wasn't viable. So then the question that Southwark had to ask themselves is, is it worth spending 60 million to refurbish a building and end up with exactly the same number of units we've got? Okay, insulated, really nice. And they were very complex scissor plans. So they went through the buildings, so they were dual aspect. And, and in the end, they, they just couldn't sustain it. So I, I've seen this journey happen. Um, and also I've seen other journeys on estate regeneration where you put the various options to the local residents and they invariably vote for total rebuild. They, and I don't know why. I think it's to do with the fact that it's it's better to, they feel it's better to get new product as opposed to tarting up the, the old product. And then you've got this issue that you mentioned about the decant of the population. So people moved out of Meiju House like 10 years ago. It's been empty for so long. They've all been rehoused in Canada Water in new apartments. They really love them. They don't really want to come back to the old estate. It's a really complex journey. So I, I've got a lot of sympathy in seeing that without knowing too much of the detail. I can just see what sort of journey they've been on. And at the end of the day, they say, if we could offload these towers to, to developers who've got more flexibility, probably slightly deeper pockets, and they'll refurbish them in a way that they have a market for. It might be a PRS or a student accommodation or whatever. I can see why, they, why they've done that. And, and just very quickly, with the current state of the economy, is it possible to do projects like this if one was starting one now from scratch? Or is it simply you wouldn't consider an estate regeneration being extra floors and refurbish? The ones that seem to work are the sort of hybrids where you refurbish the better elements and then you find ways of creating... You have to create the overage, really, in new units. So there have to be estates that are slightly baggy, that have got sites that you can put... Uh, I think the Maiden Lane estate in Camden is quite a good example of, of what's happening. You've just got to be aware of the, the condition of the existing fabric as well and whether it's refurbishable or not. And, and the, the problem with our building was it just wasn't good enough. It wasn't built to a high enough standard. So we, we were, it's like restoring a classic car. You know, we, we were putting more and more money into it. But at the end of the day, instead of having a really valuable artifact, you just end up with sort of what you had before. Uh, so it doesn't have that inherent value. So it becomes a really difficult economic equation. So I think it's a better environmental approach. I think it holds communities together. Creatively and morally, I, I think it's the right thing to do wherever possible, but it, it's a really difficult journey. And then you've got to keep the continuity of the the advocates who are trying to drive it through and the community. You've got to keep them all together for that seven, ten-year journey. So it's, it's fraught with difficulty, and I think that's why people just you know, prefer a site that they can just start from scratch and build, because even that is complex at the, at the moment as well. 
Among the many crises facing cities such as London caused by spiralling property prices include a shortage of industrial spaces, those very spaces needed for new businesses and ideas to grow. It's a shortage that has sparked a growing move towards industrial intensification and the use of multi-level solutions. Uh, This was the subject of a piece in the AHA written by this week's guest, Graham Howarth. Dramatic shifts in consumer demand combined with technological changes in manufacturing processes have spurred a much-needed reappraisal of how we deliver industrial space in our major cities. Um, The pandemic saw a surge in e-commerce and with this a growth in smaller scale third-party logistics providers and last mile fulfillment centres, all of which require new highly functional spaces. Uh, This comes at a time when competing requirements across cities have resulted in large swathes of urban industrial land being redeveloped for non-industrial uses. I mean, I think Nine Elms is quite a sort of glaring example of that massive industrial estate, now it's high-rise luxury housing. As an example, between 2001 and 2020, Greater London lost an area equivalent to over 2,000 football pitches of industrial land, and, and this was lost to other predominantly residential uses. This lost industrial land would have provided 42 million square feet of commercial accommodation. As a result, we've seen mounting pressure on planning authorities, clients and designers to find new ways of delivering industrial space, uh, with an inevitable move towards industrial industrial intensification and the use of multi-level solutions. Industria, which is uh, Howarth Tompkins and Ashton Smith Associates Design Building in East London, has become the UK's first multi-storey light industrial scheme. Um, it's developed by B First, the regeneration arm of the London Borough of Barking and Dagenham. With funding from the Mayor of London, the building contains ramp-up vehicle access for 45 individual workspace units, all located at multiple levels. Um, so, Graham, what's this all about? Uh, in the midst of a housing crisis which we talk about every week on the show, why is industrial space now something we should also be paying more attention to? Yeah, well, we've just been talking about housing. And um, I think, ironically, it's the housing crisis or the development of housing that's caused the industrial space crisis because we've literally built on every available industrial plot, up to the figures that you just quoted. So we're running out of industrial space. And what we're finding is that a lot of local authorities are really now having to reappraise what they call SIL, which is a strategic industrial land, and see how that can be re-intensified to make up for the, the overall loss that's been happening. And at the first, I think people didn't worry about the loss because it seemed it's okay if you lose a rubbish dump or a recycling centre or some of the changes tyres, they can go somewhere else. But actually what's happened is other uses have come into play now, such as the things you mentioned like distribution, last mile fulfilment centres, data centres. There's a, a demand on, on sort of industrial type space that has sort of crept up on people. It's interesting. I think during the early days of the pandemic, there was sort of breaking news about like a big old warehouse type shop in Croydon selling for a record price because it was going to be a fulfillment centre or something yeah. like that. And there was a real buzz around if everyone's stuck at home, suddenly we're going to need all these huge fulfillment centre spaces. And it's also like the, the Deliveroo trend and these like dark kitchens where they build it, yeah. all these different restaurants in a building and they fulfil the orders of people who want a Wagamama. It's not really coming from the one in the high street. It's coming from one in a warehouse. It, it gets really scary when you run out of toilet rolls. I think that's, <laughs> I think that's what really focuses the mind. It's, where is all this stuff coming from? How, how are cities functioning? There's also another demand that's coming out of the bigger buildings in the city. There just isn't the, the space 
next to the cheese grater or whatever big commercial building that's going up to to sort of run it basically on site. So all the uh, logistics and all the facilities that are needed to run it need to be relocated somewhere else and somewhere within ideally within the North Circular. And certainly, I guess one of the, the trends that's impacted this is the fact that residential property is just worth so much. So people have taken, say, like Nine Elms Industrial Space, which yeah. was strategic land, and said, well, let's just make housing. Originally, it was let's make the housing London needs for its growing population of key workers. And then somehow the proof in the pudding was luxury housing, <laughs> which we didn't need. Um, but we're talking about the type of industrial space we need to meet these demands in manufacturing and distribution which have all come about since these changes of the pandemic what does that industrial space look like because i think a lot of us have got opinions on what, what a nice house looks like yeah. what a nice flat would be yeah. what does that actually look like you know where, where do you where, where do you even start to, to, to find that out yeah I, I think it's really important to, to stress that it's not one size fits all there, there isn't a sort of industrial typology that suits every condition so for big logistics you're just talking about big box basically so they look like industrial factories or sound stages or film production like units. So, yeah yeah they're just big big containers then if you move away from that you start getting into more bespoke uh, models where you end up with uh, maker spaces r&d spaces med labs those sort of things they become more traditional spec down offices really they're quite raw but they're, they're more like multi-story buildings that use lifts to service them but there'll still be meeting rooms and nice kitchenettes and all that kind yeah of stuff, you, but... you, uh, there's there's a refresh now and what people's perception of industrial space is it's, it's no longer the sort of dark satanic mills a grotty space it, it's a lot of it's coming from america where, where there's a campus and the far east where they have facilities that bring that working community together so they have you know sports facilities even residential components in some of the um, buildings over in singapore so i think industrial space is going through a bit of a change in terms of its perception but it's it's very difficult to generalise and say this is what the model looks like because it varies from type to type and, and site to site as well. The conditions vary. So your practice designed a new light industrial scheme here in London, um, which we'll get into onto in a minute, Industria. Um, but before we get onto that, uh, could you tell us a bit more about some of the projects around the globe and around the UK that you looked at for inspiration and the kind of context that they operate in? Because obviously here in London, land is at quite short supply and very expensive. Yeah, well, that's where the word intensification comes in. And it's something the GLA have been pushing for quite a while now in terms of industrial intensification and the intensification of uh, sill land. So for every acre, you need to try and get the maximum amount of usable space on, on that. A normal industrial scheme in the UK, if you went to a sort of out-of-town uh, industrial estate with single-storey shed-like buildings with car parking, they, they probably cover 42% of the site. The GLA have been pushing for 65%, so that means that you've got to get more usable space on using a multi-level system you can triple that so we've got 135 percent compared to 42 percent on uh, normal sites through our multi-level version of industry so we've basically stacked three industrial estates one on top of the other got vehicle access to each one and um, that's sort of what makes it unique really because it's not just a, a vertical office type building where you go up lifts you actually can drive to your front door so each unit has its own parking space outside its front door it just happens to be on a sky deck seven and 15 meters up in the air so basically it's about trying to intensify in the uk and this is a model to do it and, and just so i understand so effectively it's like a, a street type yard between the buildings but in the sky does it have natural light or is it all so you really feel like the kind of space that you would find 
between buildings in an industrial uh, normal industrial estate hopefully with less like random fly tipping litter or yeah first off the, the scale is quite impressive so we're, we're talking sort of eight meters from ground to first floor so when you're in that space although it's got a, an access deck over your head and it's open at either end the light levels are really quite good in there and it feels very very open and, and naturally daylit and it's quite an interesting topic isn't it the when people think of industrial states they don't usually think of them being architect designed i think there's there's only a few that I can think of, like uh, in Lambeth, there's the Zenor Estate, which is by the Lambeth County, uh, Lambeth Architects Department yeah. over in Ballam. It's really cool from the 1970s. Absolutely love it. It's low. It's just low rise, light industrial. But multi-story over in um, uh, Broadway Market, there's this Arda um, Studios, a kind of big GLC block from the 60s. And it was for small craft makers yeah. in London's East End, like furniture yeah. makers and things like that. And it really just looks like a big multi-story block of flats, a yeah. bit like... Um, bit like how the Haygate estate used to look it feels quite rare to have architect design buildings but they do come along should we expect to see more architect designed industrial space estates in the years to come well I ho- hope you do I mean uh, when I was certainly when I was a student there was a, a, a strong component in the UK of British high-tech movement Foster Grimshaw building amazing industrial buildings and then they they developed up into different beings, didn't they? They created different types of architecture. So there was a strong tradition there. We sort of tapped back into that in a way. I think the the other point was was really about um, what makes our building the the first, and it's it's really this notion of vehicular access to each dwelling. So every dwelling has its own front door, effectively. It just happens to be up in the air. And that that's unique as an industrial workspace. If you were a small furniture maker, there isn't a building in the UK where you could have a workshop that you could drive up, up to. There's gallery access, and but that's served by goods lifts. And that's that's a slightly different typology. We call yeah. it a flatted factory, where you've got factories on top of each other. Yeah. Okay, it's not unique in, in the world. There was, there's a yeah. lot of that. Um, what did you see around the world when you were well, doing that the, research? Well, the one that we really resonated with, and it, it might have been because it was in Europe uh, rather than in the Far East. The ones in the Far East tend to be huge. They tend to be also dealing with distribution functions so they tend to be large warehouses but they do take articulated vehicles and trucks up three or four stories and they have spiral ramps at the end so conceptually there's an inspiration there about how you move vehicles up but the 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 one that really caught our imagination was a building that was done in um, 1989 it was called a hotel industrial in paris by uh, paul shemitov and it's it's a really obscure building. Nobody knows about it, and it's huge. It's the size of an urban block. It's three stories high, and it has vehicle access up to two levels, and then it has gallery access above that. And it's a really interesting mixed-use, vibrant urban workspace. And it has all these uses that you were talking about, dark kitchens, fashion manufacturers, furniture manufacturers, wholesale, retail, everything goes on in that building. And it, it was a real inspiration. We went over with the client, and we, we just saw it and thought, well, that, that's it. That's, that's what we're talking about that we need in embarking and we followed that model through it gave us a lot of confidence actually that it would it would work so you and your partner steve tompkins set up the practice howard tompkins more than three decades ago Uh, it's got a well-earned reputation for designing important cultural buildings theaters and public spaces many of london's most important landmarks in that field Um, in 2014 you won the sterling prize for the liverpool everyman theater just a couple of weeks ago yourself and steve tompkins announced that you'd be stepping down from your roles as directors in march so why now and what does this mean for the practice and also for yourself what are you going to do (laughs) 
Yeah, well, it's big. It's big news, and it's a really exciting move for us. I mean, we we started the practice in 1991, so over 30 years ago. So we've we've been at it for quite a long time, and we've been uh, lucky with the sort of commissions we've had and the diverse range of projects. So we've been talking about housing, industrial. We also do cultural buildings, uh, which we're probably better known for. And, and architects are actually really bad at succession planning. They either go on until they're 90 and then shut the door when they've run out of clients and make everybody unemployed. or They don't provide a future for their employees. And we've, myself and Steve, have never really taught. We've done reviews and crits, but we've always taught in, inside our studio and brought people through almost like an apprenticeship scheme, really. And, and we've been very hands-on. And that's meant that we've kept a, a cohort of really good, talented people within the studio that we, we've slowly been sort of getting in the position where they can take it over and run it. So in, in 2018, we we set in motion a plan. So it's not an overnight sort of we're just down tools and we're, we're going somewhere else. It's, it's something we've planned. So we've got directors that have been in position for five years now. We also importantly formed a, an EOT. So 55% of the company is employee-owned now, and that, that's been in place now for four years. We became a B Corp. We did a lot of stuff. We made we made the office the the project really, as opposed to individual buildings. And we tried to create this this entity that we could step back from. And it's been really interesting because you you've actually empowered this group. They own the company effectively, and they're going to be the future of it. And it it really feels a really good moment, an alignment really of various things that you just feel that you should just get out of the way, you know, just move move backwards, move sideways. South Korean architect Min Suk Cho and his practice, Mass Studies, have been chosen to design this summer's Serpentine Gallery Pavilion. Uh, this was reported in the AJ this week. The 57-year-old Seoul-born designer's proposal for the temporary structure in Kensington Gardens, Central London, will be the 23rd in the gallery's ongoing series of annual architectural commissions, which began in the year 2000 with Zaha Hadid. The concept for the 2024 Serpentine Pavilion has been dubbed Archipelagic Void and will feature five islands arranged around an open space, similar to the small courtyards found in traditional Korean houses. The islands are envisioned as a series of small smaller adaptable structures dubbed content machines, each individually named and serving different purposes. Uh, There's going to be the gallery, the auditorium, the library, the tea house and the play tower. Explaining the team's approach to designing the pavilion, Cho said, quote, We began by asking what can be uncovered and added to the Serpentine site, which has already explored over 20 iterations at the centre of the lawn from a roster of great architects and artists. So, Graham, uh, what do you make of this year's pavilion designs? Are you a fan of this architect's work? Well, strangely, I, I've been following uh, mass studies for, for quite a while, and um, I'm really kind of excited by the choice, really. Uh, I think it's a very bold choice. What I personally like about the work of Minsuk's work, really, is that he's, he's sort of operating in the middle middle territory. He, do, he doesn't overestimate the capacity of the architect to deliver all the solutions and he 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 doesn't overestimate what architects can achieve he's quite realistic about that so he hasn't fallen into that utopian mid-modernist trap of solving every problem and creating a new world order it's, it's some he's, he's willing to compromise and I, I think that's something that i really resonate with but he also doesn't underestimate what what can be accomplished with with architecture as well and how it can bring around change so his thought processes are all about facilitating and filtering and enabling 
And I, and I think there's an amazing sort of depth there that I, I really identify with. So there's a sort of modesty and an ambition, and neither yeah. of them is, is outruling the other. So you get a good synthesis. And then that comes yeah. through in the design. I mean, I think I have to say, when I looked at it immediately, I thought, well, that just looks nice. It looks like very nice materials. It looks like it really fits into the site. And it looks like there's quite a lot of versatile space in it. Yeah. Whereas some of the other ones, I sort of look at it and it's like, hmm. I might feel a bit awkward in that space, <laughs> yeah. you know, or it looks like there's just one space there. I'm sure it'll be challenging as well. I think it will be quite challenging spatially and in terms of how the functions work. But it's the fact that he actually has this idea of continuity from historic models like courtyard houses and things like that. I mean, there's something kind of deep in that that, that a lot of practitioners don't don't often want to do they want to sort of start from scratch so it's, a, it's an annual pavilion commission it's now in its 24th year i think at the beginning of it it was it was very sort of radical and um, architecture wasn't as prolific uh, in british society there wasn't as many architects getting commissions to design things like hey this design district we're recording in right now wasn't yeah. imaginable yeah. Uh, back then but now like 24 years on and certainly we've covered it on the show there has been a little bit of controversy um critics pointing out a lot of concrete being used for one of the buildings um questions over sustainability sustainability of an extravagant temporary structure that just exists there and also there's sort of been some questions about the social purpose served by these installations what do you think about how the pavilion has evolved over the years and why should people still get excited by what is you know quite an extraordinary thing that in many ways we are quite lucky to live in cities where things like this happen maybe this year's pavilion will buck the trend and put it back on track. But I, I do take your point. I think it's a little bit like the Turner Prize. It had its real heyday, you know, when, when Martin Creed won it for the lights, turning on and off. It just, people were like breaking the televisions, weren't they? And they just couldn't understand it culturally. And I think that's the, the challenge. And I think the Serpentine did that. Then it went off a bit and hopefully it will come back on. The difference between it and so something like the Turner Prize, it's not actually a prize, it's, it's an individual commission. So it allows the author to have more polemical a, approach to, to what the, the issue might be and how it communicates it. But I think it's been patchy. I think sometimes it hasn't, hasn't worked. And I, I won't go on and quote any other things that I didn't <laughs> think worked. But there are some pavilions that I think just didn't didn't actually resonate and didn't provide that sort of social insight that you're talking about. It's also a little bit elitist and it could be better somewhere else. You know, why is it in Hyde Park and does the Serpentine have that connection? And I, I think it does. And I, and, I, and I think it's good that it does it because I think it's all about diversity and the diversity can go up as well as down. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't all need to be street-based. It can be quite elitist as well. So I think the fact that there is that sort of slight contradiction there that could be challenged i think is, is quite interesting it gives it a bit more tension a bit more edge yeah it's nice to have an excuse to go to kensington gardens but then again that is a part of the world that sort of continually isolated itself from a gravity of london that's shifted in different exactly. directions yeah you'd think this would be better now either you know sort of over in hackney wick or something you know where well, victoria where, park would yeah, be a perfect yeah. setting or walthamstow or somewhere you know somewhere that that actually has a little bit more common focus i suppose and and more general uh it might, might affect more people that way. You know, it might, might bring benefit. But I think the the benefit of it being accessible, being in London, and people can go and look at it and see, and and be exposed to really high quality architecture. I think is the the big message. I think it would be a real shame if if that got lost. 
Okay, so we're now on to the culture section. So what's coming up in the cultural space? We've got um, architecture on stage at the Barbican, a public housing manifesto. Uh, this is an event put together by the Architecture Foundation. It comes at the start of what looks to be an election year. Uh, an expert panel will set out the key issues that Britain's next government will need to address if it is going to bring about change to public housing. So very much looks like the curators of that event have zoned in on housing as the number one issue for this election. Um, coming up for the general election at some point this year. Um, so the panellists include many previous guests from The Brief. Uh, so there's Pooja Agrawal, uh, Russell Curtis, Claire Benny, um, and it also has uh, some other amazing panellists as well. Melis Howard, Joseph Henry, Paul Karakusevic, Adam Khan, Adelie Richards, Osama Shush, and Astrid Smitham. Um, that's Friday the 26th of January at Barbican Hall, so that is very coming up very soon, one for the calendar. And then also, um, we've got the Charles Holden exhibition uh, over at Senate House. Uh, so there's a new exhibition about plans by the architect Charles Holden for the University of London Senate House. So Holden was um, really famously associated with London Underground in this sort of era, 1920s, 1930s. Um, this exhibition runs until the 15th of March. It's free to visit. Um, Graham, have you had a chance to, to go down there for that one? Yeah, well, strangely, through, through a coincidence, we're, we're actually doing a building um, on the Charles Holden campus for the University of London for the, the Warburg Institute, which uh, is a regeneration of an existing building which is on site at the minute. So um, I went along to have a look at it last week. And it, it's a really tiny show. It's not very big. It's just in the, the foyer of Senate House. But it's really interesting. And some of the artefacts that they've dug out um, – historic models, um, original drawings from the period, little sketchbooks of uh, Holden's, how he was trying to sell the scheme, and also the, the iterations that the scheme went through from the original concept through to what was built and what was delivered. It went through lots of different changes. There's lots of controversy as well. He, he wanted to get uh, Jacob Epstein to do sculptures on the outside of the building. That was vetoed. Then he went to Eric Gill. That was vetoed. And then he finally had to go at Henry Moore, and that was vetoed. So there are all these little plinths on the outside of the tower that are ready to take public art and sculptures which were never fulfilled there's an amazing film as well of them clearing the site which is actually quite shocking i mean they, they literally just pulled down uh, massive mature trees on cranes and and, and it just, i just can't imagine that happening now but but they they had a sort of vision that it was very much like a transport infrastructure system sort of holding to come from the the underground he had a campus, so he designed it like he designed the the tube system basically it was empirical uh, scientific and, um, and it's at that moment as well in, in time where there's this sort of very stripped back rational classicism, almost fascist in a way, the, the sort of architecture that was being produced. It's, it's very much of its time. It's a fascinating uh, little show. So there you go. Charles Holden exhibition until the 15th of March at Senate House. Graham, it's been an immense pleasure to feature you on The Brief. Um, where can listeners go to stay up to speed on your writing and your work and other things? Are there social media handles or a website that is the best place to go to? Yeah, we've, we've got a, an Instagram link and social media link through, through the Howard Tompkins website. So that's probably the first, the first protocol. Yeah. Fantastic. Thank you for being on the show. No, you're welcome. Really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Thank you. 
You've been listening to The Brief from Open City, made in association with the London Society and the 20th Century Society. This show is made possible in part thanks to Bloomberg Connects, a free digital guide to art and cultural organisations around the world. A link to download Bloomberg Connects is in the show notes. If you've enjoyed The Brief and want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which covers all these issues and many more. To get early ad-free access to The Brief and support Open City's wider work empowering young people from underrepresented communities, please become an Open City friend today. The link is in the show notes. The Brief is produced by Poppy Waring and hosted by Phineas Harper, Merlin Fulcher, Cyber Chadder and Fran Williams. The series editor is Merlin Fulcher. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is dedicated to making cities everywhere more open, accessible and equitable. Thank you.